0: introduction to Mark's gospel, two of the prominent themes of this book are discipleship and faith. And in in the section of Scripture we're looking at this morning, we see a bit of how the two work together. For the first time since Jesus called the, the disciples to Himself back in chapter 3, verse 14, they are now being sent out on their own two by two. And if you were paying attention to the reading, you might have picked up on that common literary device that is pretty unique to Mark's gospel. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, Let me remind you, or point it out to you, right after verse 13, when Jesus sends out the twelve, immediately in verse 14 and abruptly, the entire story shifts to this maybe 15-verse narrative of John the Baptist and Herod. And then at verse 30, it abruptly shifts again and picks up where it left off in verse 13 with the disciples reporting to Jesus how successful things were. You can almost picture Mark uh, kind of writing out this gospel and then suddenly realizes, actually, going back, you remember whose voice is behind the gospel of Mark. You remember? This is Peter the apostle. So this is actually kind of fitting for the kind of personality that Peter had, a very impulsive and just kind of ready fire aim kind of guy. You can imagine as Mark is furiously writing down what Peter's saying, it comes to Peter's mind says, "Oh man, Mark, I just realized there's this other event that took place that beautifully captures what I'm trying to communicate in this section. So just jam that right in there." Now, We've seen this kind of jammed-in section of Scripture before a couple of times already. You recall in Mark chapter 3, it talks about how Jesus' family wanted to seize Jesus or stop Him or bind Him, and then immediately how the religious leaders were saying that Jesus was seized by demonic spirits. And then Jesus breaks into a parable about binding the strong man. And then it concludes with Jesus talking about who His true family is. The point of the parable was nobody binds Jesus. In fact, it is Jesus who binds others because of His divine authority. No one can grab hold of Jesus. No one makes demands upon Jesus. Jesus makes demands on others. We saw the same thing happen in Mark chapter 5. When Jairus approached Jesus to have uh, his daughter who was sick to be healed, And then immediately, Mark jams in uh, several verses about a woman who had a disease that caused her bleeding for 12 years. And so, Jesus deals with this, and then immediately it jumps back to Jairus, and his daughter had died in the intervening time. The point of that kind of jammed-in part was, like this woman that above all odds had faith in Christ and reached out, Jairus, you do the same, reader, you do the same. And as a matter of fact, that, that little aside culminated four miracles that was highlighting how our fears need to be framed by faith. Now, you know, as I taught you, that you're dealing with one of these unusual evidences in Mark's gospel. And by the way, this is the kind of thing that commends the authenticity of Scripture to us. You, you don't think of these things if you're trying to fabricate stories in such a unique way. One way you can tell you're dealing with what I call a jammed-in section, Um, some people call them "mark sandwiches, just because it's sandwiched, one thing is sandwiched between two others, is you can actually remove the narrative, that little inserted area, and not miss a beat in the overall narrative flow. Let me illustrate how this works to you with the passage we're looking at this morning. I'm going to read Jesus' words to His disciples as He sends them out and then just jump over the entire narrative of Herod and John the Baptist, and you see how it flows. Verse 12, "'So they, the disciples, went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught.'" So, you can remove that entire section about John the Baptist and Herod of Antipas and you would not miss a beat in the overall flow of what Mark's trying to write. So Mark and Peter, they jam this, this narrative about Herod and John the Baptist right in the middle of this section to make a point. What is so The question we have to ask to interpret this is, well, what is the point that Mark's trying to make with jamming in the story of John? Well, it's pretty clear that discipleship comes at a high price. Now, unpack this a little bit more, but as Mark begins to shift his focus in the gospel and he begins to include the disciples who take an active role, it's understandable that the question, well, what does a disciple of Jesus Christ look like, would rise to the surface. And following that, It makes sense then why there's these two amazing miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, follow up on the heels of that, because really, on the heels of this narrative of John and the shock of discipleship costing so much, why or how can anyone follow Jesus like this? And it's followed up with these two miracles to bolster our faith or confidence. So, what we want to do this morning is we want to ask the two questions that I think Mark is hoping we're going to be asking of the text. That first question is, what does following Jesus look like as one of His disciples? And how, maybe a better question is, why would anyone follow Jesus that way? Then we're going to end with a final point about faith to really make the point very clear of this text. So, let's look at that one at a time. Number one, What does following Jesus look like? This is the first section all the way up to verse 30. And we begin with Jesus doing what Mark said He had always intended back in chapter 3 verse 14 when He gathered the twelve disciples, that He brought them to be with Him and so that He might send them out. And it says in chapter 3 He appointed these twelve to do that very thing. And we talked about that these twelve were representative of the new people of God, you recall chapter 3, Mark was saying how people were coming from everywhere, and he listed it, and we saw on the compass that these were everywhere that the people of God used to occupy. Mark's point is something new is taking place. These, these 12 people, these twelve disciples, it's not a coincidence that you had 12 disciples after you have 12 tribes. This is a new people of God, and not just a new people of God. This is a new humanity that Jesus, Jesus is gathering around Himself. The reason I want to point that out is that these twelve, they are not exceptions to us. As if somehow that the twelve disciples occupy alone a completely unique place in God's plan, and, and therefore they are completely unlike us. They're the exception, when the reality is more often than not, they are the example for us. So yes, they occupy a very unique role in redemptive history, but their role is unique in that they're kind of this new humanity setting the template for all of us. So what they do is what we're supposed to do. It's not like they started it and we all stand on the sidelines applauding them. We're watching them, and which is why I think God, in his wisdom, chose men that were so relatable to the rest of us. Peter is just quite a much of every man that there can be, right? James and John, even the outcast, Matthew a tax collector, a betrayer of His nation. These are all people that we can relate to. They were the unworthy, the unqualified, the unfit, but Jesus says, it's in you that I'm going to do my work. And so, Jesus intends to send them out just like He intends to send us out. It says in the text to preach the gospel, but really all of what we're supposed to do is testify to God's saving acts in Christ, however you do it, whether you do it behind the pulpit, like I get to do every week, or whether you do it in your cubicle, or next to a locker, or across a desk, you are sharing God's saving acts in Christ. You are testifying what God has done in Christ, and because of that, pushing back the powers of darkness. We see it very clearly in the gospel message in that they were casting out demons. But the point is, we are to push back the powers of darkness, primarily through the proclaiming of God's saving work in Christ. And so, disciples, what does following Jesus look like? Simply this, we just do what He did. The twelve are not doing anything new that Jesus had not already started. Remember Jesus' opening words in the gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus says, for this reason I have come, to teach, to proclaim the gospel. And Jesus went around teaching and teaching and proclaiming and proclaiming. That's what the disciples do, that's what we do. Uh, it is interesting to note, this is one of the um, challenges of taking big chunks of Scripture like this, we kind of have to fly over some of these amazing details, but we do see it here as Mark weaves into his narrative overtones of even the Exodus, as in the book of Exodus, both here and in the following miracles that we're going to look at. For example, i want to draw your attention to the four items of clothing that Mark mentions, the tunic, a staff, belt, and sandals. It's interesting that he would mention the same exact four items at Exodus twelve eleven. God says to the Israelites, "This is how you are to prepare. This is how you are to dress when you eat the Passover." The idea being, you had your staff in hand and you were eating the Passover because you were ready to get going as soon as God said to go. You were ready to take off and you were ready to go. You kind of wonder, and, and I think the answer is yes, because we're going to see it throughout this narrative. Is Mark hinting at? Something as foundational and revelatory in Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples as what we see in the book of Exodus when God is bringing the people of God out of the nation of, of uh, Egypt. In other words, in Christ, is there a new Exodus taking place? And these 12 disciples, are they just as foundational as when God brought His people out from Egypt to establish them as the people of God? I think the answer is yes, and you'll see these hints of it all throughout. We're we're not going to dive into any of them too specifically because we're trying to get the main point across, and that is discipleship and the relationship of faith. But we cannot read these things, these little details, and not go, why did Mark put that in there? Why did Peter think that was important? Remember, the the challenge with reading Scripture is you kind of have to read it at one and the same time like you read any other book, a recording, but you also have to remember there's somebody trying to teach us something through this. This is not just a recording of events, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this has happened. No, no, no. The gospel writers, they are organizing the material because they're trying to make a point, And so the reason I bring that up, it's easy to read the Bible and think, hey, blah, 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 blah. And this, that, that happened, without realizing why did Mark include that? Like, why does he have to tell us the grass is green when they sit down? Why does he bother to talk about these four items of clothing? They're there for a reason. I think Mark is making all throughout this section an homage that God's doing a new work here, just as profound as when he made Israel leave Egypt. But it's also, what's interesting is what Jesus tells them not to take in verse 8. Notice this. He's sending these disciples out, and we don't know for how long they are out there uh, on their first, quote, kind of missions trip, so to speak, but He tells them to take no bread, no bag, and no money. All the very things you think you might need in a missions trip, right? All the provisions and supplies, So for those of you going to Malaysia in a couple weeks, I think you got your, your packing slip, right? So you might be in your room laying out all the needs for your missions trip. You got your clothes, your toiletries, you got your bug spray, your cell phone charger, your hydroflask, your Nalgene, your airplane pillow, right? All these things you got out there. You imagine Alan Tonneson from our missions committee calls you and says, oh, we gotta go this afternoon. And you can only bring one set of clothes and your toothbrush. Let's go now, right? What are you going to say? I can't, are you crazy? I've got all these supplies. I can't just go with one pair of clothes and a toothbrush. I need my provisions. In some sense, it's as if Jesus is saying, Look, I just want you to go. I don't want you to trust in your setup infrastructure and your provision and your supplies. Jesus, we just started to be around you and be with you. We're not prepared to go out. Jesus, look, I know, you're you're not as well trained as you think you need to be. You don't have the provisions you think you'll need. I just want you to trust. This is what I'm asking you to do, and trust that I'm going to show up when it happens. On first glance, on the face of it, it looks like sending out these disciples kind of ill-prepared and not very well trained is probably not a wise thing to do. But in reality, this typifies Christians in every age who have been sent out by the Lord of the harvest. Friends, a genuine ministry, and ministry just means service, right? So, don't think that's what ministry is. Ministry is service. A genuine ministry, a genuine call to ministry is always going to call us to things we do not feel adequately, adequately prepared to handle. I mean, that, that, that's just the reality of it. A genuine call from God is always going to be a call to things you do not feel you are prepared for. We see that right here in the text. Friends, Is God calling some of you to some obedience, some risk, some ministry, and you are hesitating because you do not feel prepared for it. That you do not feel that you are ready to tackle this. As a pastor, always kind of talking to people, trying to get them engaged, there are, there are two kinds of people that do make me nervous. There are one on one side, they're just ready to go no matter what. They are just Johnny on the spot. They're just going to jump into the situation. I get a little bit nervous with them, although I like that spirit. I get a little nervous because sometimes I wonder, do you, are you aware what the real situation is here? Do you, do, you, do you clearly see the ask here? On the other hand, I get a little bit nervous from people who they're never ready to go. They're never prepared. They don't feel adequate. They don't want to step out in faith. Unlike these people who I'm not sure they understand the situation, I'm not sure these people understand the Savior that they serve, right? Either way, I think something's missing. You need to see the situation more clearly. You need to see the Lord more clearly as well. The people who I really enjoy are the ones that can actually see both, and they still move forward. They understand, oh man, this is the ask. That's pretty daunting. I'm not prepared. I don't think I'm equipped for that. Yet they step back and say, but you know what, if this is what the Lord wants, I'm willing to step out. As long as He's going to be with me, I'll go. I think that's an important balance because that feeling of knowing what the ask is, but being able to be confident that it's the Lord who's asking of it, that always leads to a wonderful place of humble dependency, doesn't it? You're not so confident that you feel like you can do it on your own. You're not so overwhelmed that you're not willing to move out in faith. That realization that I'm really not prepared for this, but if God wants to work, then at the end of the day, it's not really about me to begin with, isn't it? Isn't it about Him? And He just wants me to be faithful, just wants me to to step out and trust God. That's a good place to be. Being an ill-prepared disciple is not necessarily a bad thing, friends, if the fruit of that is a humble dependency and trust that God's got to show up because God's got to be able to do what I simply cannot. See, faith, friends, it is, it is not a blind step into the dark, but it does mean that we are gripped by the realities and the promises of God enough to risk the comfort of certainty and the security of knowing that things are going to turn out the way we want them to right? that's, That's important, to be so gripped by the fact that, look, I don't understand. I don't have the certainty. I don't have the security of knowing, but I do know that God promises greater things than my own security, my own certainty. By the way, this is exactly what Christ did for us, except the only certainty He had when He left the comfort of the Father's side was the certainty of knowing that He was going to endure difficulty and struggle. And the only security He had was knowing that we would be blessed from his suffering. And so following Jesus is simply doing what Jesus himself did. And this also means struggling and, in fact, maybe even willing to die like he did. Yep, that's what I said. Following Jesus means doing what he did, but it also means dying like he did. Friends, can I say this? This is kind of radical, but that's exactly the point of verses 14 to 30. That's exactly why Peter and Mark jam that into the gospel. There are only two passages in Mark's gospel that do not talk about Jesus, and they both talk about John the Baptist. The first one appears in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and John is foreshadowing the message and ministry of Jesus himself. The second one is right here, and John is foreshadowing the death of Jesus. Think about it for a second. If you're familiar with the narratives, think about it for a second. Both John and Jesus were executed by political tyrants who feared them, but yet gave in to the social pressures around them. For John, it was Herod's giving in to Herodias' desire. For Jesus, it was Pilate's giving in to the mob's desire. Both John and Jesus die silently, innocently, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, like a lamb to the slaughter while being faithful to God's call in the midst of a corrupt society and corrupt men. So, what is Mark's point? in bracketing John's death by the mission of the disciples in verse 13 and verse 30. This is his point, that mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death are as inescapable realities as it was for John the Baptist, for the one who will follow Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because that is not, that is not kind of the church growth model message to get people to flock to a church. But it's inescapable by seeing why did Peter, why did Mark bracket John's execution by Jesus sending His disciples into the world unless He wanted to communicate, listen friends, mission and martyrdom, discipleship, death, they're inescapable realities if you're going to follow the crucified Savior. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean everyone's going to end up like John the Baptist. Very few people do. But the question is, would you be willing if called upon That's the point that they're trying to get across here. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what Jesus said just a couple paragraphs later in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling to the crowd, and calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. And Mark, in his literary style, is highlighting the exact same point. So Mark is holding up an extremely high standard of discipleship. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to ask, how in the world is anyone supposed to, to live like that? How do we have that kind of trust and willingness to pay that kind of price? I mean, it's, it's one thing to step out in faith and do things that you don't feel prepared for, right? It's one thing to ask us to risk comfort and security for a greater purpose than personal desire, but to pay a cost that high? Are you, that, how could anyone follow Jesus like that? I think that's exactly why Mark follows up this narrative with these two amazing miracles we have to try to answer this question, well, how could we follow Jesus like this? If that's the kind of faith, that's that kind of robust faith that Christ is looking for, how do we ever get to that point? Now, for the sake of time, let me just kind of give you the answer. Um, I kind of already did. The, The answer is having a robust faith. Right? Here's the thing we've been learning the last couple of weeks. As faith apprehends God, it instinctively grows and moves towards the object of its desire. That's what faith does. As faith uh, apprehends who God is, who his, His promises are, what He intends to do, our faith naturally, instinctively will grow and move toward the object of its desire. But that kind of robust faith, friends, does not happen, is not grown, is not cultivated in the comforts of ease and leisure and security, right? That kind of faith is not grown through convenience or osmosis or just attending a conference or reading a book or wishful thinking. That's not how that happens. Now, some of that kinds of things can spur a robust faith if that faith already exists, but Mark is showing us that robust faith like that more often than not grows in the context of crisis. And that's what we're seeing here. And the very first crisis is in verse 32 to verse 44. And if you're reading the the subheading of your Bible, that might actually seem sacrilegious to call this amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, a crisis. And there's a good chance the reason it seems wrong is you might have the kind of sanitized version of this miracle in your head, right, where it's like all these happy families are gathering around on this nice kind of pastoral scene, and they're eating sack lunches because a little boy shared with them, and they're just listening to Jesus teach, right? That is not the picture here. This is a crisis. Did you notice three times Mark calls it a desolate place? Verse 31 verse 32, and verse 35. The scene here is not a church picnic, right, unless your church picnics happen in desolate places. The scene here is a desolate area, uninhabited, ruined, is other ways you could define this word. It's a lonely, uninhabited, ruined place. So you have thousands of people, no food, no provisions. It's getting dark, and they're in a desolate place. Things could go sideways really quick when people get really hungry, don't they? So, you've got thousands of them. It's getting dark. There's nothing around. And so, the disciples make an extremely reasonable suggestion of Jesus. Jesus, it's getting dark. Send the crowd away while there's time so they may go to the, the villages on the outskirts and find something to eat. But notice what Jesus does rather than relieve the crisis. Verse 37, what does he say? You give them something to eat. He intensifies the crisis. (laughs) Jesus, you can imagine, and you see the magnitude of the ask here in verse 37. They said, this is two, uh, wait, two, did I hear you right? 200 denarii probably couldn't feed these people. Now, Matthew 20, verse 2, tells us that one denarii is a day's wage. So, they're saying, look, 200 denarii would not… Hey, did anybody happen to bring like $45,000 so we can buy dinner? That's what's being asked of them. They say, this is something we cannot do. We see, the disciples do what we do, right? We look at our situation from the perspective of our ability to handle it or not, and then we decide, are we going to panic or what are we going to do? We get panic or get fearful. You see, the disciples in this situation, they only saw the impossibilities, but Jesus saw the opportunity here, that this is how I'm going to make faith grow. It's not going to grow when it's easy and comfortable. I'm going to put you into a situation where you're feeling panic at the borders of your psyche, and you're going to have to decide what's going to come true here, what's going to be the reality. And some of you might be in the middle of a situation and you're relating to God based on the impossibility of it. He very well may be waiting for you to realize the opportunities He's placed before you in that very crisis moment. And what happens here, obviously, is Jesus steps in and He performs this amazing miracle of provision So much so that after these thousands, and by the way, if you notice, um, Mark, it is a a patriarchal system, so he talks about 5,000 men. He's not counting how many women and how many children were there. We're just talking thousands upon thousands of people, and there's still 12 baskets of food left over. You have to wonder, as you're reading through Mark's gospel, this is the benefit of reading kind of many chapters quickly over and over at home. Didn't Jesus just teach about this very thing? Didn't didn't Jesus just get through teaching about when when things seem to be going sideways and we're tempted to give up because it seems like God is not at work, that our trust in in His plan and His kingdom, it's just a waste because nothing's turning out the way we intended it, but then all of a sudden we learn about the faithful sower and there's a return 30, 60, and 100 times what we anticipated? Didn't we just get taught that we're not to use the metrics of this world to determine how things are going to turn out? It's exactly what he just taught us in chapter 4, and he's seeing, we're seeing it modeled again here in chapter 6. In other words, friends, if the only variables you have to make sense of life are from this life, you will not be able to make sense of life. If the only variables you have to make sense of life come from this life, you do not have what you need to make sense of this life, is the message being communicated here. Faith in Christ is never a call to ignore reality, but it is always a call to see a bigger reality. And we just so often do not see that. We always see the situation and say, okay, what, what, what are my resources? How do I deal with this? And Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm wanting you to do what you need to do, and that is to trust in me in that. We'll touch on that in a little bit, but we, we need to move on. That's the first crisis. Here's the second crisis, verse 45 to 52. Verse 45, Jesus then tells his disciples he immediately says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of Jesus' disciples at this point, and he tells me to get back into the boat, I'd be kind of nervous. i am like, no, every time we get into this thing, something happens, and I'm not sure I want to get into the boat. Jesus says, get into the boat, go to the other side, and so they do. This time, Jesus stays behind to dismiss the crowd. In other words, Jesus is intentionally setting them up for another crisis situation. For hours, they are struggling against the winds on this lake, the Sea of Galilee. We talked about some of the storms that can come through there. Imagine the picture again. Here they are in the Lake of Galilee. This time, Jesus is not with them like He was the last time, and they've been struggling against the winds and waves for hours. And we know that because the text says it was evening time, and then when it says when Jesus went to them, it was the fourth watch, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So, it could have been between five and six hours that they're out in the lake struggling to get across, and Jesus is not with them in this storm, although the text says Jesus was watching them the whole time. And then verse 48, then Jesus walks out onto, on top of, On the water. In in one way, this is another way of Jesus intensifying the crisis. (laughs) Again, we know the story too well. Imagine Peter, as he's recounting all these facts, you know what's going through his mind, that Jesus is deliberately sending the disciples into a crisis situation, but He does so to reveal His character when He delivers them. By the way, this is the way God always works. We saw that in the Exodus in Egypt. In the crisis, God will deliver and in His deliverance He reveals His character and we see the same thing here. This book was written years after the events that's recorded in it. Peter is recounting and reflecting. And remember, as I said, Peter is deliberately, as all the gospel writers, are assembling store, assembling material from their memory, from the records, and saying, this is what we need to communicate. We want you to understand these things. So, when you're reading it, you're not just thinking, why do you say things like that? Because there is an author behind this that's trying to communicate something. And I think the crux of it is here in the second half of verse 48 of chapter 6. So, Jesus starts coming to them, walking on the water, right? And it says to them, walking on the sea, He meant to pass them by. Now, we know Peter knows the Scripture, and at the time, they have no idea what's going on. All they know is that they're wrestling in the ocean, and here comes something. It looks like somebody walking on the water to us, and they're terrified. Upon reflection, though, Peter writes this phrase, and he was intending to pass them by. Here's the thing I want to set up for you. The Old Testament says only one person walks on the water. The water in the Old Testament was always a symbol of chaos, always a symbol of chaos and death and ominous existence, right? But the Old Testament says there's one who walks on the water, and that is the Lord, Job chapter 9, verse 8, who alone, speaking of God, stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And finally, Isaiah the prophet, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So as Peter's experiencing this, it's just terrifying to them. As Peter's reflecting and writing this down, he knows what's going on here. Jesus is not choosing to walk on the water simply because He has no other better way to get to the disciples and wants to show off, hey, look at what I can do. Can you do this? That's not the point. Remember, every miracle is a sign pointing to something. And in this case, it's pointing to Jesus' divinity. Because only one being walks on the water. Only one being tramples the chaos of this world. And that is God Himself. But Peter says an interesting phrase, and He meant to pass them by. Well, where else do we see that phrase? A few times in the Old Testament, when the request was to see the glory of God, and God said, No man can see my glory, no woman can see my glory and live. But I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will make my glory pass you by, and you may see my glory as I pass by. So, as Peter's reflecting on all of this, he's recognizing what's going on. Jesus gets into the boat and he says, Do not be afraid it is I. In the original Greek, ego eimi, I am. Where else did we hear this? When Moses asked the Lord, who will I tell the Israelites delivered me? And the Yahweh said, tell them that I am has sent you. And so, when Peter looks at all this, says, look, here's Jesus. He walks in the steps of God, and he takes the name of God as he gets into the boat. In the crisis, Jesus is revealing Himself as who He is. And Peter says, we didn't realize this then, we were just terrified. But as I think about this, this is exactly what He was doing, walking on the water, showing only one being can do that, and that's God Himself. And when He gets in the boat, He says, it is, I am. Notice that last phrase in verse 52, tying these things together for they did not understand about the loaves. Well, what does that have to do with the, this thing walking on the water? Peter's saying, look, we didn't get it back then. When Jesus said to us, you give them something to eat, he was saying the same thing to us. He told them Moses in Numbers 11. When the people of Israel were complaining about not having food or water, the Lord said, you give them something to eat. And Moses said, how am I going to do that? Are all the fish in the sea going to somehow end up on the dry land? Will all the birds in the air go into the mouths of your people? And if you know the narrative, almost literally that's what God did. God fed His people. The point is, in each time, the disciples were not looking to God and His provision, God and His presence, and God and His power. And so their faith did not develop. It did not grow. Faith, the kind of faith that we're talking about here that discipleship requires, is a robust faith faith, that trust in God's provision, that trust in God's presence and power. I want to pull these strands together as we conclude. Mark's point is that if we're going to have the kind of faith that discipleship in Christ requires, we need to think of it more of like a crash helmet than a fashion statement. In other words, it is not something that's simply there to look good, but the kind of faith that God requires serves a much more critical purpose. It is not a faith that's developed a nice, smooth, kind of sloping bell curve, right? It is the faith that is developed. It looks more like a, like a stock chart in a volatile financial market. It's got its ups, it's got its downs, it's got its zigs and its zags. That's the kind of faith that it comes out. And Mark is telling us time and again, that kind of faith is not the mere result of knowing things about Jesus or even being with Him. And this is the lesson we learn from Jesus' family. His own family did not have that kind of faith. This is the lesson we learn from the crowds who were constantly with Jesus, but always as observers, never as contributors, always as consumers. Even His own disciples struggled with that. And friends, that is because that kind of faith does not develop automatically and it does not evolve inevitably. Friends, if, if you have been kind of coasting on developing a faith in Christ, and, and you're thinking that it will just naturally develop automatically by osmosis just because I showed up on a Sunday morning, that's not how that works. Faith does not develop inevitably in sinful human hearts. Oftentimes, it takes crisis situations And we see that as a result of specific choice, specific decision. Am I going to trust God in this situation? Am I going to do what He says, or am I going to do what I think I need to do here? Am I willing to go out when I don't feel prepared? Am I willing to take the task that seems impossible that's going to press me to trust in Him and not my own resources? That kind of decision does not come automatically to us, because our MO, if you're anything like me, is the path of least resistance, man. Whatever I need to do to get through life without too much stress, without too much inconvenience, that's the path I'm going to gravitate to. But that's not the path of robust Christian faith is developed upon. It is in those moments of crisis when we have to make the decision. Now, you might say, look, I am in crisis, and I'm asking God, where are you going to provide? Where am I going to see your power? But here's the point. It is not so that you're merely relieved of the crisis. The point of seeing God's provision in those moments to see His power is so that you have a faith that can be like the disciples who may have to pay the high price. God's not interested in just delivering us from crisis just so we can go, "Whoo." He's interested in delivering us in crisis so that we can have the faith we need to pay the price of discipleship. Friends, that's really important. I'm going to say that again. God will not. You say, well, this doesn't work because I'm in crisis and God's not delivering me. But if your end goal is just to get out of the crisis, you miss the point. God delivers us from crisis so we can have the kind of faith that prepares us to pay the price of discipleship. That's why He delivers in crisis. See, because God loves you more than give you what you want, right, and what we want is just to get out of the crisis. He loves you enough to give you what you need. The problem is we often don't know what we need, and so when the crisis happens, He tries to clear away the, the fog of this life and makes us realize what is really important. To use the metaphor of Mark as we conclude is, you, you have to get into the boat, friends. You have to be in there with Jesus, not just hanging out, not just listening occasionally. You have to get into the drama of what He is doing through His gospel message in this storm-tossed world, because there in that moment, in the middle of the storm, you fully behold who He is. As we see here, the man who calmed the storm in Mark 4 is the same guy that's in the middle of the storm in Mark 6, claiming to be the very I Am of God. And that only happened in the moment of crisis. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Mark and Peter reminding us of how the kind of faith we need grows. And though we'd like it to grow in a nice, comfortable, predictable, easy way, we see it in the lives of your own disciples. And how would it be different in us that it grows in moments of crisis and concern When we have to make a choice whether we will be ruled by our own fears and choose the path of comfort and security, or we're going to get ruled by faith and choose the path of maybe uncertainty, but knowing that you will provide, you will come through, you will display your character, your power and presence, but it's not merely to alleviate the crisis, but it's to build within us the faith that discipleship requires. Lord, some of us are there. Many of us are there. Some of us aren't. And so, Father, like the man in in Mark 9, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. Would you help transform and change us so that we don't just want what we want, but we also want what we need, and that is that kind of robust faith to pay the price of discipleship. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.